Hello and welcome to our podcast. My name is Francesca Kum. I'm a consultant urologist at King's College Hospital in London with an interest in endourology, mainly BPH and stones. I would like to welcome today Dr. Richard Hindley, who is a consultant urologist at Hampshire Hospitals. The focus of our podcast today is looking at water vapour therapy, the more than five-year outcomes in clinical data, and also the clinical experience. So Dr. Hindley, how long have you been offering water vapour therapy for your patients? So I actually performed the first case in the UK in March 2017, so it's over six years now. It's, it's really flown by uh, and it's been a really interesting and exciting journey. Excellent. And so which patients do you think are suitable for water vapour therapy in your opinion? Ideally, I think the biggest cohort of patients for whom it's suitable um, is the sort of younger man keen to retain sexual function, who's working and has a gland volume in the range of 30 to 80 mils. I think that there is a second cohort of patients that we might consider, but I think that depends what other BPH treatments we're offering at our institution, and that will vary around the world. So um, I can see potentially a role for offering a minimally invasive procedure, such as water vapour therapy, where you can do it under a local anaesthetic, that you might offer it to a patient who isn't perhaps fit for a general anaesthetic. Great. And your experience so far, what tips and tricks and what things would you pass on? Yeah, so I think it's been a real journey for me. And as the, you know, the first person to be doing the cases in the UK, I guess I was leaning more towards over-treatment because I was really keen to, to show that there were, you know, that, that it worked. But, you know, running with a minimally invasive treatment, you know, you, I think it does make you really more patient focused and you're really looking at, at the, you know, what the patient's concerns and requirements are. And you can adjust the water vapour treatment according to the needs of the patient. It's versatile in that way. Mm-hmm. So it's great that I've seen that it's adaptable. And from reading kind of clinical outcomes and clinical literature, um, I know that you've published um, a few clinical outcomes, etc. Can you tell me more about that and also what's been published kind of globally, etc.? Yes. So the Pivotal 2 study was published and that was a randomised trial uh, two to one, um, you know, active treatment versus sham. And the five year outcome data has now been published. And, you know, that's very good in that there's a you know, consistent uh, improvement in symptoms, which is maintained out to five years with low retreatment rates. The results are very much in line with the, the studies that had gone beforehand, so that the results appear to be reproducible. Compared to some of the other minimally invasive treatments, perhaps, you know, we need more randomized trials. Um, in terms of you know, my own experience, we did publish our sort of real world outcomes, the first 461 patients that we treated. And that was, you know, obviously there were some patients with gland volumes bigger than 80 mils, uh, a small proportion, 10 to 12% were in retention. So it was a real sort of warts and all real world experience. But I think the results that we got with that were very good. And in fact, the IPSS uh, reduction and, and, and QMAX improvement, not that that's so important, um, were, if anything, better than, uh, than, than in the randomised trial. And, and now, the, the, you know, there is more real-world data. There was a Swiss publication recently um, in print, and there's data coming through on, on, on patients in urinary retention, for example. There is a, a randomised trial in, in the UK due to start any time now called PREMISE, which randomizes between TURP and three minimally invasive treatments, including water vapor therapy. 
So moving on back to your, you published about the 460 um, patients and your patients in acute urinary retention. So they're of course the cohort patients who would otherwise be potentially with a long-term catheter. Um, what, were your, what was your experience on that? I think we were pleasantly surprised in that we, we, we had 80% of our patients catheter-free by six weeks. Um, you know, I think it's better to be focusing on those with acute painful retention rather than chronic painless retention. And you know, our results that we, in the process of submitting for publication, are in line with the five or six other published papers in the literature. There, I think there is one prospective study uh, and four or five other retrospective studies, so modest numbers. But in terms of the range, I think it ranges between 70 and 100% catheter-free. Clearly, drawing on the experiences from other minimally invasive interventions, patient selection is really important. Mm -hmm. But I think um, as a potential role for the future, if we can you know, offer these minimally invasive treatments under local anaesthetic, and we know the waiting list problems that exist, and patients, young, often young men, waiting several months before their operation with a catheter or performing self-catheterization, there might be a real opportunity there for men after failing their trial without catheter to be offered maybe two weeks later a local anaesthetic minimally invasive treatment. That's great. So moving on to more about your protocols and what you offer your patients, um, do you do most procedures under general or local? Um, and just tell me as if somebody were to be starting out their service, what would your best advice be? So my journey as a personal journey has evolved over time. Obviously, the learning curve, the first few cases, you want to do them under GA ideally. And I was basically following what the US and what we're doing and, and my mentor, I guess, um, from Sweden, he, you know, I was sort of taking their advice. Mm -hmm. uh, initially, we were perhaps performing two thirds of the cases under LA, often with sedation, and about a third under GA. Um, it's evolved over time. I think it really does come down to the environment. So I'm still doing cases under LA. Um, we're using topical gel, um, using you know, uh, you know, initially transrectal but now transperineal uh, LA. Um, but but also another option is to use you know fentanyl, midazolam, you know, and topical gel. So that you know there are different approaches. Um, but I think it really does depend on the country you're working in, the environment you're working in, you know, what do you have at your disposal? And in the UK healthcare system, there are many hospitals that don't have the right environment or space to be doing these cases, but that's all in the process of changing as we know. Tell me more about patients' expectations and how you manage those with all of our BPH modalities that we have to offer. Yes, it, it does require a proper conversation and, and, and I think as clinicians we need to get better at listening. Mm -hmm. We need to be very patient-centric and not say, well this is the procedure I offer, that's what you're getting, mm -hmm. because those patients will be disappointed and they'll go elsewhere or if you do treat them, they're less likely to be happy with their, with their ultimate result. So it, it's a case of understanding what their issues are, mm -hmm. but obviously as, as, as doctors we want to know what is the prostate volume? What is the flow like? Do they have detrusor dysfunction? Mm -hmm. How severe are their symptoms? Mm -hmm. What are they particularly worried about? Mm -hmm. What are their demands? And, you know, for example, if a patient, you know, isn't worried about preserving sexual function, that seems like a small proportion of patients to me, then maybe we should be looking elsewhere if they've got a larger prostate gland and looking at one of the laser therapies. So, um, 
I think there is work being done on, on shared decision aids and, and I think that will help inform that, that discussion. And in the state healthcare system, we always have those real limitations on our time in a clinic. Mm. Um, but some of that work increasingly can be delegated. Moving on from decision aids then, how do you see that water vapour therapy fits in amongst all, amongst all the other treatments? It's versatile, it can treat patients with a trilobar prostate gland um, or a bilobar gland. There are a number of publications in the literature, which I didn't mention earlier. Once one gets over 100 mils in volume, in the discussion there's usually another option that might be better. Any final advice that you would like to give those of us who would be starting out water vapour therapy um, in our practice? I think you know, this technology is very versatile and it's very unlikely to impact on sexual function. It's very unlikely to cause harm. Mm. Uh, at the most common, the reality is, you know, at first do no harm and, and, and you know, most patients get good benefit. I think in an effort to stay safe with the treatment, it would be to follow the you know, the, the prescribed, recommended um, teaching for doing the, the treatment itself. I do point out to patients that if they've got a middle or median lobe, that they are perhaps a little bit more likely to have some symptoms in the early post-operative period, uh, and then maybe a little bit more likely to produce small amounts of tissue or debris. Um, so it's definitely in my mind, I think that overall, patients with a bilobar gland have a little bit of an easier time of it than those with a trilobar gland. So I think that would be an important word of advice. Thank you very much, Dr. Hindley, for your expert advice today. So we hope you've enjoyed this podcast today and have learnt a lot. Um, so far, we've covered hopefully a bit more about how water vapour therapy features, where we foresee it going in the future, and a bit more about our real world data over more than five years experience. Thank you.